0: Welcome, Legionaries, to Legion Cast, episode 26, Hobby Roundtable 11. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me as usual are my co hosts, Brandon, Manipal, and Paul.
1: Welcome, Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me, people who have stuck with us for the entire year. Welcome to Legion Cast. Great to be here, Paul, Manipal, always a pleasure to have you on, and looking
2: forward to today's episode. Yeah, greetings Longbeards, thanks, good to be back here again. I haven't been on every episode, but I've enjoyed all of them, and going to show that even Longbeards can find joy once in a while.
3: Yeah, you know, who to think we'd make it a year, and uh, with what we got left in the book stock, another four, five years left.
0: And then we get to cover the Siege of Terra books.
1: Yeah, there's a reason we set this podcast up this way, and it's because we're not exactly strapped for content at any point, but... Uh, No, it's been a whole year since we started Legion Cast. This started as uh, Warwick and I sitting at my kitchen table, putting together our Age of Darkness boxes, saying, we talk about heresy all the time, why don't we do it, and then put it on the internet? Because, you know, it's always a good idea to put things on the internet.
0: Well, and let's not forget, Brandon, that you and I came hot off the heels from a YouTube meetup there in downtown Dallas— and we met a bunch of YouTubers down there and we're like, wow, if some of these donkeys could do it. Why well, can't we?
2: So how come you guys haven't started a YouTube channel yet?
0: Because um, uh, really Warwick
2: f- hasn't learned how to edit.
0: that. I downloaded OBS, so shut up. Uh, but I also don't have a great uh, streaming setup right now. I don't have a streaming rig.
1: Yeah, I uh, many times have said I will do YouTube, but I'm not doing any of the video editing. So, you know, I'll uh just whore my face out for money potentially, but no no editing here.
0: So, we've got some interesting topics for all of us tonight. We've got a Amasec hour talking about our year in a heresy, a Fulgrim's quest talking about our favorite project this year. We've got a GW intern hour talking Legions Imperialis and a new segment where we talk about the famous rivalries of Warhammer. And I think we're going to be talking about Magnus and Russ because we just talked Thousand Sons and we're going to be getting into the uh, Prospero Burns book very soon. And it's all going to be very relevant.
1: Yeah, definitely. So before we uh, jump in here to a full year in heresy, just real quick around the horn here, what's on everybody's hobby table?
0: I have finally worked up the courage to start working on Bobby G again.
1: People, it's happening. Stop the presses. It's finally
2: happening. Um, I've gotten a little more work done on my <clears throat> on my headhunters for Alpha Legion. These are guys with the long rifles instead, and I've um, just kind of been going through it and just tightening up them bit by bit. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to get all the details on the first pass, but it's, it's nice that every time I go back, I find something else to fix, and they're kind of slowly coming together. So I'm just enjoying the process of doing a little, little bit at a time after blowing through over 250 orcs early in the year. This has been a nicer chill process.
3: Yeah, and I'm still just working through the backlog, trying to get everything organized. The, uh, uh, what was that app you were telling me about that I've been using?
0: Figure case. It is amazing. I love it. Can't plug that one enough. We're not sponsored, but I
3: love it. Current count sits at 1,070 miniatures in my collection. And uh, about 61% now is primed and about 25% is painted. So we're getting there. I'm just slowly working through it all. All
1: right. Well, gents, I have got to come with you for with a confession. I deserve to be admonished because I have done no hobbying. I have let my emperor's children sit on the shelf and stare at me and say, paint me. And I said, no, you guys are gross and weird. And my Dark Angels, you can see the lion sitting on the shelf behind me looking disappointed as he always is with me because I have done no painting whatsoever. Well, uh, Well, to be
0: fair, you were gone for a month.
2: Well, and if we count any cross genre stuff, you have been playing some uh, Middle Earth strategy battle, haven't you? I, I have been doing a lot of Lord of the
1: Rings. Um, I want to get back to heresy. I'm just trying to dig deep and find the motivation to, to you know, put the the paint on the brush again. I've got some dreadnoughts who are ready for some oil washes. I just need to, you know, stop being lazy and
2: actually do it.
0: Just do it. No excuses. Just do it.
2: Yeah, no excuses. Play like a champion. Yeah, and this is something we've talked about in our hobby sections before, is how to just break the ice and how to get started. And my old go-to is just paint the base, put something on the base. And then it's, it's a uh, low impact, but once you get the brushes out and the water and the paint in front of you, it's easy to then to do a foot, then do an arm, do a leg, do a gun. One thing goes to the other. It's, but breaking the ice is the, is the hardest part.
1: Well, let's, uh, let's go off on a bit of a tangent here before we jump into our Amasec hour. Um, one of the reasons I feel personally that I have not, uh, been super motivated to play heresy is because i've just been you know with my busy schedule and everything not able to get very many games uh lately i haven't been able to play a game in, you know over a month because of you know vacation and all of that but how uh how does playing games affect you guys with getting your painting done does it motivate you more or does it make you kind of get lax on your painting and be like ah oh, well the models are already built so i'm fine
0: So I absolutely feel some amount of shame showing up with partially painted models. So when I get them out there, I'm like, well, they work for now. Like that game I played against Martin, I didn't have all the models I needed. So I had to proxy a bunch of stuff. And I felt like such a tool having, you know, kind of these um, ad hoc squads out on the table. So I never want to do that again. The first thing I did when I got home was get the models I needed to finish out those squads. So having an incomplete set really motivates me to get back to the hobby.
2: Yeah. So I've always got a few things going on my, on my painting table, but I know if, if I've got a game coming up, usually that week before really motivates me to put, put some more effort into it and work's going to come visit this weekend. So that means every morning instead of doing my usual play computer games or, surf on uh, the net i'm going to actually just sit down and paint for a couple hours instead so i should have some nicely finished models by the time
3: he gets here yeah generally i i'll be very motivated when i start an army and then and i'll get a relative intro force painted and then i start playing and from there motivation will kind of wax and wane based on how well the army plays um A lot of my motivation is tied to whether I'm excited about the army, and losing is a very easy way to lose that motivation. And I lose a lot, which is why none of my armies are painted.
1: Yeah, I feel bad because I feel like I regularly nuke your uh, motivation to paint in our games.
3: Yeah, I was very motivated to paint Easterlings. I was like, yeah, I'm going to finish out this pike block, and then I got absolutely destroyed yesterday, painted zero models. On the flip
1: side of that, I'm very motivated to paint my elves.
3: <laughs> yeah, I bet.
2: Yeah, the, the, the times I've painted the most would be when I know I've got like a, a crusade campaign or something coming up or do a slow grow with with a few other guys and say, We're getting, we all have to do infantry this week and everybody posts pictures and we do it. Um, I had a rivalry going with a local buddy of mine for a long time that we would, every week, we'd just count the number of models we finished And then the other guy would have to buy, the loser had to buy the winner dinner. And so we were always back and forth for months, uh, just painting models and and one-upping each other on the number we could get done. So you got to find some kind of motivation. Otherwise, they just sit there. Maybe that's what we need to do. We need to tie money
1: to it. Whoever paints the most models gets five bucks from each person every month. It wouldn't be fair though, because unlike the rest of you, I have a life.
3: So I was going to say it wouldn't be unfair because I work 60 hour weeks. I'm going to lose every month. There's no way.
0: Bold words, Brandon. Well, I tried something similar about a year ago is I tied money to a weight loss competition and like half of the people dropped out of it immediately, even though they would paid in for it. So I don't know. Not always a great motivator for some people.
1: Did you use that money they paid in for snacks?
0: Uh, no, I used it to buy more exercise equipment that completely overshadowed all the winnings that I got.
1: Good for you. All right, well, let's jump into the uh, the Amasek hour here, which is that uh, Legion Cast is turning one, or turned one, um, by the time this thing is released. So, we made it. We made it a whole year. We haven't killed each other, probably because we're not all co-located, but uh, it's been a, been a good year, and... The other thing that's turning one is Age of Darkness Heresy 2.0 is also turning one. So let's look back at the year. You know what? Are, what are some of the highlights from the year for you guys?
0: Boy, I think I was so happy with the Plastic Leviathan kit. I immediately bought two of them when those came out, and it really caught me off guard because I thought we were always going to have like, especially the larger Forge World models. I always thought they were going to be shitty resin, but getting so much of this stuff in plastic has been just a complete game changer for me.
2: So I thought my, my I had I had the same feeling when the, the game came out that it was uh, something I've been looking forward to for a long time. Getting a lot of these models in plastic, and so I determined early on that I was going to finally buy a, a, a some Forge World stuff and made a big Forge World order, and I got my my big flyer. Um, what's it called? The the, the Fire Raptor. The, Fire Raptor. the yeah. Fire Raptor. And the first time I finally got it on the field, I was so excited to unleash all the firepower that this this multi-hundred-point model could inflict on Warwick's Ultramarines, and so then found out that, oh, I have to roll to see if it even comes on the board. And then roll again, and roll again, and finally, well, by the time the game was already over, it showed up and killed one guy. So... On the one hand, it was a highlight, being able to work on such an amazing model, and also the biggest low light, that it did nothing for me. So there you go.
0: Don't you have a, a somewhat interesting story of putting that thing together? You forgot to put a part in, so you had to panic and.
2: Yeah, but the, but what I found out later on is that the 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 two-part epoxy I was using to hold the model together actually doesn't stick that great to resin. So I was able to kind of bust it loose, put it back in, and, and yeah, so... Uh, It wasn't an ideal situation putting it together. and Having done one, my second one would go a lot better, but I'm never going to buy a second one, so there you go.
3: Yeah, I feel your pain on that flyer thing. In 15 years of playing, my greatest weakness and opponent has never been another faction or player. It's been my own reserve roles, so I know exactly what you're talking about.
1: Oh, man. Reserve roles have been the bane of your existence for a very long time, which is why I don't play reserves, but... No, it's been, a, it's been a really great year. You know, we got a lot of things teased and, and released as well. Um, a lot of kits come into plastic. It really, you know, I think we all here started playing with the new edition, but that's one of the things I want to hit on is it made the game accessible to a lot more people, um, which, you know, has upsides and downsides. But I think that they've really managed to ride the upside of it for the most part and avoid the downside of like getting metagamey and and stuff like that. Um, there are still some things that, you know, I look back and I say, how have we made it a year and we don't have Assault Marines. Um, but, you know, that's, that's kind of part of the, part of the deal there. And then also, you know, at the kind of the tail end of, you know, one year of, the Heresy we got uh, Epic announced. Yeah, as well. and I
2: think what they're, they're they're probably keeping their powder dry and a few of those things so that they can have another big shot release, you know, probably maybe around Christmas or or first part of next year, where they can you know, inject some new life into the game now that it's been out because a year in the life of GW is not that long, but I just pulled up the uh, Warhammer Horse Heresy page for um, the web store, and there are 122 different units you can buy on, from the web store. Just for the Legions of days not counting the other um, sorts of things you can get in there, and that's pretty impressive to get 122 unique units out in a year. I think is a is a win for GW. All things considered. Well, caveat that's actually closer
1: to like a hundred uh, because they also right. include the Primarchs in there and the transfer sheets and.
3: That's a lot of options stuff, though. but yeah, but, I mean. I think it's, all of a sudden that, it's all good. It like um, 60 or to 70 new plastic kits, which is still massive. Yeah,
1: definitely. Um, I, you know, I, I could sit here and gush about the love for this game that I have, you know, even if I haven't been motivated on it lately. It, for me... It really brought back something. You know, I know, uh, Paul, you and I had talked about this a little bit, but I was actually right before this got announced, I was like hunting for fifth edition rule books and codexes and stuff. And we were talking about playing fifth edition again because we just we just did not like where 40K was. and We were not having fun with the game. And then this came out and they were like, it's basically what what I missed about the game. You know, it's got the crunchiness that I like. Um, and the system is just familiar. It's like, you know, kind of walking out to your garage, pulling the cover off your classic car and saying, hello, old friend, I've
2: missed you. Yeah. And as the, I think I'm the only one of us that still plays 40 K. Is that true? Uh, on a semi-regular basis. And I, so I, I had a game of the new 40 K, uh, last month, and it felt very similar to any other 40 K game that I've played. Um, It it was not, I didn't feel like it was really strongly uh, tactical or strategic. It just seemed like two people hitting each other, two eggs hitting each other with hammers is kind of what it felt like. And with with 30K, I felt more like the old days where it was, you really had to think more deeply about where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do with these models. And because you've got, but it's a, a lot more complexity in 30K. The number of keywords, the special rules you have to know, it can be daunting for a new player. So, I certainly get why 40k is the way it is, because you can get all those rules in just a few pages, and uh, your data cards. But with 30k, it's a much bigger investment, not just hobby wise, but also mental wise. But I enjoy that that part of the game, so it's been good for me too.
1: Well, yeah, and uh, another part of that though is you know because of the system and how this rule set. Is designed, uh, you know, we're talking older forty k and and Horus Heresy. Yeah, there's a lot of rules to learn, but everybody's using the same rules, so you don't need to memorize every rule for your army because it's completely unique to every other army. You say, "Uh, this get this unit has fearless. What does that do?" Oh, well, I know what that does. I'm your, you know, as your opponent because I have fearless units as well. It's not I have. Space Marine thing, and you have Tyranid thing, and they do the same thing, but we don't know that, because we don't play each other's armies, and they have different names, so
2: I think that helps too. Uh, So I was playing Imperial Guard in that 40k game, and I almost had like a little mini game I played with my orders that I had, and because the Tyranids I was playing against didn't have that, I was doing something that he had no knowledge of or no corollary to, but he had his own sorts of things that he was doing, and it was almost like we're playing two different games, kind of. It was still 40k, but it, we're not playing the same sort of thing. It was, uh, one thing I was happy for that they, they did get rid of was the psychic phase, because that was like 40k at its worst, where you would just roll some dice, remove some models, roll some dice, remove some models, and then your opponent could do almost nothing about it. That that sort of stuff, um, if that comes into Horus Heresy, I'll be disappointed, but... I haven't seen it to that extent yet.
0: I don't think it will. I think that's too much of a mechanic change. I don't think they'll do that. The way that psychic powers work right now, I think is handled very well. So I'm not really worried about that.
1: Yeah. I think that uh, it it functions very well, but again, and that's kind of, you know, what you said, that was my big problem. I I stopped playing 40 K in eighth edition, but that was kind of my big problem with the stratagems in eighth edition was I was going to line up this combo and it's, Every game just turned into who's gotcha is going to gotcha because you don't know really what the other army can do or what they're trying to do until they execute it. And it's like, Oh, well I just lose because I didn't execute my big power combo before you did, which, you know, heresy definitely has the, you know, you've got your big hitters out on the field. And I mean, you're usually rolling, you know, that, that big character with his retinue of terminators or, suzerain if you have broken bullshit in your rules um but uh that's uh at least then you you have an idea of what your opponent's trying to do here okay this is their big fighty unit it's gonna come fight me these things are trying to take the objectives i'm kind of doing the same thing you know even if we're going about it in different
2: ways
0: you just pissed suzerain have a line
2: yeah it's dumb it's so stupid. It's Suzerain or dumb. Speaking of that, do you think we will get some kind of a balance rework at some point in Horus Heresy, or are they going to avoid that train?
3: Um, well, if 1.0 is anything to show, or even how they've been handling 2.0, it's unlikely. It And especially with how the Heresy community has kind of shown itself both capable and willing to self-medicate and balance the game, I have a feeling that GW's not going to put the bare minimum into it i
1: i always kind of get some heartburn when i hear balance update or stuff like that because i i think that historically with gw rule sets they've proven that a lighter touch tends to do the game better
3: well i was gonna kind of note on it too like we've talked a bit in previous podcasts about how we think heresy is really well written and is really you know functionally a good game but a lot of that is isn't so much what gw has put on the paper it's what the community has like kind of fixed in their absence you know it's a lot of stuff like if we play rules as written Korax and magnus don't benefit from their own shrouded rule because they have fearless which countermands their ability to use shrouded but the community said hey don't be the guy that tells them they can't use their own shrouded rule that's stupid and we just fixed it and it's fine but like you know that's kind of just been from day one how we've operated you know it's the same thing with a lot of tournaments you know balancing Primarchs and dreadnoughts and that sort of thing it just it's the community doing it not the company
0: i think dreadnoughts are a good example of how that's handled i mean like brian and i have kind of agreed to a, a loose house rule of like one dreadnought per a thousand points, basically And dreadnoughts are so powerful in the game that yeah, you can take six of them and any given list, but it's probably not the sportsmanship like thing to do. And so the, the, I think the heresy community at large has kind of acknowledged that. And that's kind of how it's handled.
1: Well, and there's nothing wrong with doing that if you want to as well. Like I know Paul has talked about, you know, he's got a list where he's runs five dreadnoughts and we've said, Hey, let's do that but i'm gonna know that that's what you're showing up with and i'm not gonna build i'm gonna build a list that's gonna be ready for five dreadnoughts so uh heresy is a game to play with your friends is what i really believe about this game and that's where it truly shines honestly like all games um it's it's better when it's 11 o'clock at night on a Saturday and we're knocking back beers and throwing cups on the table that become impassable terrain right in the middle of your charge than it is going to like a five-game tournament or something like that. There's a place for that stuff. Um, honestly, I don't think that that would be very fun for especially this game because it's not being constantly balanced. And stuff yeah, like I mean, that.
3: if we were playing a 40K-esque Meta tournament setting, everyone would just play custodes. So
0: um, I'm looking at the uh, to kind of change gears here a little bit. I am looking at the uh, the roadmap that GW put out a while back, and we're coming to the end of summer here. Um, well, I guess we're kind of midsummer, maybe. But um, in summer, they said they were going to do the Night Lancer, which we've seen. And then also, new char- for resin kits, they're going to do new characters and upgrades. Do we know what those are yet? Is that something I forgot about? Because um, Evander Garris and uh, the Sons of Horus guy, they were spring releases.
3: Uh, they teased that uh, generic champion model. Oh, the shit, resin you're right. Guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's one. one. Uh, the upgrade kit, off the top of my head, I don't remember.
0: So maybe we still have yet to see that right at the end, and
1: then... Well, this is this is Games Workshop here. Summer is like through November okay, yeah, that's
0: yeah, as well. I'm I'm on America so. time here.
2: We're, no, you're on actual people. So time. we, we like, were talking about um, highlights from the year two. I think um, certainly getting into some of these books, and I can't. I'm not sure right now which one is my favorite. But do you guys have a favorite book that you've uh, got into, or do you see like what's at the top of your game right now? I guess if I had to pick one, I'd say Fulgrim was the most fun I had. What do you
1: guys think? It's obviously the greatest literary masterpiece of this entire series so far, Battle for the Abyss, for me. You
2: know, laugh what you want. That has some of the most memorable scenes for me. When I go home and think about stuff that happened in a 40K book, I still think of that world eater chucking the axe through the wall that, to...
0: That's this that's the scene I always go to that one, or when he, when he throws, he's out of ammo and his bolt pistol. So he throws his ax at the word bear and cuts his hand off mid, mid speech. I was like, that's the most world eater shit I've
2: ever seen. Yeah. And like the rest of the book you can forget about, but there's a few of those. It's like, Oh my gosh, how did he write that?
1: Now, in, in all seriousness, um, favorite book for me, that's a really tough one because there's so many good ones, especially in that first 10. I mean, and again, I'm not going to get into an argument here, but like Battle for the Abyss is really the only miss in that book for me. Um, overall, I I love Mechanicum. Uh, it's one of my favorite books in the series. So I, I guess that that's probably got to be my pick.
0: I'm going to have to go with Galaxy and Flames, and it's it is such a polar opposite of Battle for the Abyss because Ben counter wrote both of those books and you're like, how in the hell did he write galaxy and flames and then follow it up with battle for the abyss? I, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I wish he would do more or I, I wish he had done more good 30 K books, but I think galaxy and flames is maybe peak for me. It really caps off those first three books very nicely, especially since that's one arc all in itself. Uh, it's probably going to have to be my favorite.
3: Yeah, I think in terms of the podcast, the only one I did was Legion, right? Oh, no, I was on Tales of Heresy, but I'm definitely not picking that one. Um, yeah, I mean, Legion is still a solid book. I mean, anything written by Dan Amd, it's going to be good. Not the uh,
0: Empire.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's true, but I guess we haven't gotten to that one yet um other than that though just personally the first three books are always going to be the gold standard for heresy just because they're the ones that kicked it all off
2: yeah and i'm actually considering buying those in like a like a hard hardback version i know they did some special editions of those and it'd be nice to have those on my shelf if there's any books from that series that would get Hardbound, it would probably be those, the, the first three.
0: Definitely worth collecting in hard copy. They are kind of hard to come by these days because so many of them have gone out of print. I know I was at Barnes & Noble a month or so ago just kind of perusing through their section. And, like, I remember, like, Barnes & Noble and Borders and all those bookstores used to have that stuff organized very neatly. But anymore, all the Warhammer, regardless of, like, if it's Age of Sigmar or Heresy 40K all of it's just mixed in together. Like they, they have stopped um, kind of stalking that so zealously like they used to, which it, it kind of breaks my heart because I remember being a kid and I grew up in kind of a smaller town, I guess you'd call it in Iowa that didn't have like a big bookstore like that. So whenever I went out of town to go visit my older, older brother's, I always wanted to go to, I think it was Borders at the time over by our other brother's house. I always wanted to go there and check out all the Warhammer books. And they just had shelf upon shelf of Warhammer books. And now they have just one tiny section. And I was like, that kind of breaks my heart.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky to find even one. And the, the prices on those books are a lot higher than they were before. They're a larger format. And even if you go on the secondary market on eBay looking for, because I'm trying to fill my collection up and get all these books, and at least in paper bound or a paperback. And they're going for $35 a piece for a book that re- retailed at seven ninety nine. It's insanity. But maybe your podcast is the reason for that.
0: Yeah, could be. People like us talking about the
2: hobby. could work. Um,
0: another, if you have a pre-owned bookstore, I know Maniple, when you visit, we always go to Half Price Books. And it's worth checking out that section to see if you can find any uh, any rare finds there. So if you've got one in your area, definitely go check it out. You might be able to find some of these hard copies there
1: actually on that note, it's not a bad uh, place to find old rule books too if you're looking for those as well. I know I take my old rule books to half price books so definitely yeah, worth especially
3: look. if you have a used bookstore nearby a hobby store a fairly frequented one those ones always get old codexes rule books board games because what you'll get is players will be going into the store to buy the new stuff we'll go and dump off their old stuff there to get a little bit of cash before they go into the other store. So you can always hit them up. There's always some hidden gems every now and again.
1: Definitely. Well, again, uh, go us for a year, but uh, should we, should we jump into our Fulgrim's quest here?
0: So on to our next segment, we're going to talk a Fulgrim's quest and we're going to talk about the favorite projects we've had this year or favorite project, I should say for each of us. And, what what project what project maybe taught us the most or what we had the most fun with. So which one of you guys wants to lead us off there?
1: I'll start. Um for me, it's it's very easy to pick what my favorite project of the year was. It was the Lion. I I was actually just talking with Paul about this last night. I think that the Lion is the best model I have ever painted. And I tried a lot of techniques that I had never tried before um, and it was really fun to do and I think turned out quite well. I tried uh, airbrush blending, which worked very well, I think. And um, the other thing that I had kind of dabbled in a bit uh, but hadn't really messed with was uh, non-metallic metal. So I painted, uh, his trim is true metallic, but his actual armor is uh, done with, like object source lighting and um, non-metallic metal. And I I think it turned out pretty well. Um, And it was a lot of fun to do. And it's something I want to try more of in the future.
2: How many hours do you think you have in that
1: that model? A lot. Uh, I did it the week that Warwick came and visited me. So when we weren't playing games, I was painting that thing. And I mean, probably... 30, 40 hours. I mean, work. what do you think? I, I spent a long time on that.
0: Uh, I think you had about 20 hours at least in it. You you worked really hard on it. And uh, any, like you said, anytime we were between games or you weren't working was you were on that model.
2: Uh, so for me, I already mentioned working on the, the Fire Raptor, I suppose. I would not say that was my favorite project. I think I liked just working on my line troops and Alfarius and the, you know those sorts of just regular guys for the awful Legion. but working on the big resin model taught me a lot about uh, putting the model together um, using a heat that that regular guy Alfarius yeah just that regular guy um, but it taught me with, when you work with resin you have to it's good to have like a heat gun or some hot water to get the, the parts to, to sit right. I liked how they combined a, the a plastic kit and resin parts together. It was heavy, so I had to consider how I'm going to paint it. When you're dealing with a heavy model, do you set it on the workbench or do you try to hold it up? And um, I need to get some pictures up on that because I'll, I'll be hopefully after I'm done with my current project, I'll get back to that and start putting on my water slide transfers because I've got some of the nice ones for that. So I think, um, I, and also discovered that the the contrast paints didn't turn out so well on a large flat surface. That's why I'm going to be using a lot of the water slide transfers and a few other things to blend it in. The The contrast paint works better when it has a lot of crevices to fill and that sort of stuff, but on a flat surface, it turned out splotchy. So I'm, I'm going to work on that. So the model provided a lot of different uh, challenges for me, which I'm looking forward to solving. So that was probably my the highlight for my uh, project this year. So
0: for me, this is going to sound kind of weird, but I know... Earlier on in the podcast, I mentioned that I don't pay a lot of attention to the smaller aspects of the models that I'm working on, like especially on tactical Marines, they've got like the, the kind of mesh behind their knees and maybe like the bolter slings on some of them. A lot of those little details when I'm speed, or I guess when I'm batch painting, I tend to overlook those, but uh, a project that I did a month or so ago maybe was I, I finalized a 20 man tactical squad. And before I based them, I went through and I started picking out all those little details. So I did, you know, like the belts, the parts behind the knees, the, they've got little tubes um, going from like uh, their thigh to their shin or whatever. And I started picking out all those little details. And then I worked on the backpacks a little more and then I put bases on them. And, revisiting 20 models and putting together all those tiny details, I feel like really cleaned those up a lot. And then another sin I'm probably guilty of is I'm really bad at, especially on these kind of line troops. I'm not always the best at removing the mold lines, like say on the center of the helmet or in some of those places, I went and cleaned up a lot of those as well. So I know in in a lot of my older stuff, it looks kind of sloppy, but This 20-man squad right now looks 10 times better just because I went and took took care of those small details I used to not care about. But a year in this hobby has really given me a little more discipline to take care of that kind of thing. So, you know, it doesn't take that long. It's not much extra work. Just if you're having trouble with it, just stop being stubborn. It's not that big a deal. It's easy to knock out, and it's so satisfying when you do so. You know, if you're struggling with that, I mean, I don't have great advice for it, but you just got to do it.
2: Yeah, I'll say I, I picked, I remember a few years ago, I picked up um, a bunch of Space Marine tanks on eBay that were going for, no, it was a Facebook marketplace. I think I got these three Space Marine tanks for like 30 bucks. Couldn't pass up the deal. Got them home and found out that the guy, when he'd assembled them, had just clipped them off the sprue, but not cut off any of the mold lines or any of the sprue ends that were on that so the tanks were all just shoved together with um gorilla glue, gorilla glue and from the pictures he sent i couldn't tell that so when i finally got them home like nothing fit together right i had to break them all apart trim them up and re-glue everything but i, I and i wonder if that's why the guy sold them because he just didn't take the time to clean the model before assembly
0: another thing is um for new hobbyists out there don't use gorilla glue because it expands when it cures and it will push your mold lines apart use regular like loctite super glue or the gw plastic glue it works very well it's i think it's the the same price or cheaper than gorilla glue but you know just stick with the basics i
2: find that on stuff i get on ebay i find gorilla glue constantly it's the the bane of my existence on the resale market stop using it it's horrible
3: Yeah, I think out of everyone, I've probably had the least amount of painting projects. I've been so focused on trying to get the backlog built. You know, I can say that I've built, you know, like a hundred models in the past month, but nothing's painted beyond priming stage. Uh, In terms of fun projects and that, I mean, it's it's nice to have the entire like 5,000 points of Sons of Horus that I own actually built. I can put it all on a table and it's good to go. So it'll be ready for when I get to that painting stage, as well as, you know, basically every other faction I play is now all tabletop usable. That was always a thing that killed me, like back when me and Brandon were doing Age of Sigmar, would he be he would hit me up and be like, hey, let's play Saturday. And it would be like, all right, well, I just put together this list. I'm going to use 20 blade gas Revenants. And then I'd get home and realize they were all still on the sprue and there was no way I was going to get them built in time. So it was like, all right, well, uh, let's, let's take something else. <laughs> so it's nice to just have it already available. That's kind of been the big win for me this year. Yeah, so I think
0: that wraps up our Fulgurms quest. That's quick and easy. So I think we're going to take a break here, and then we'll be back for an intern hour in our new segment, Famous Rivals. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to get into our GW intern hour. We're going to be talking a little more about Legion's Imperialis. I know we've touched on this a little bit in the previous few episodes, but we keep getting news that's hot and heavy, and we want to be talking about the new rules that they have previewed for us, and I think it looks interesting, and Manipal says he wanted to talk about it, so here we go.
2: Yeah, there's been plenty of news and new releases in the last few weeks, and I know we've As Warwick said, we've touched on some of this, but keep in mind we've already seen uh, teaser releases for uh, walkers and and, uh, some mobile artillery. We've seen the release of the new uh, tanks that will come on a sprue, and there's even been a little bit of discussion by the developers about how they came about uh, making this game. There was a discussion on uh, Warhammer Community about the scale of the game, and you'll see that the, all of the, the models are bigger. There's an, I'm looking at the Warhammer community page now. Uh, the it, everything from the troops to the uh, to the tanks and to the walkers are all a scale up from where they were in previous iterations of this game. And I really think those models look amazing. Uh, I think I was I was online and I saw somebody. There was a picture of a one of these new Bane blades from behind. And when I first looked at it, I thought that that was a new 40K model and not the little one for Legions Imperialis. It wasn't until I looked close and saw, well, there's that banding around the armor plate that showed this is the new Baneblade for Legions. The level of detail is fantastic, and I think that we're uh, really in a good time to be gamers. Now, the core concepts look very similar to what we saw in our previous uh, discussion of Plundering the Vaults, where we looked at how the game used to be played. You will indeed be able to set up your uh, formations and detachments. So you're playing the equivalent of a whole one of your 30k armies in this game, plus another one. So you're, you're effectively running almost two armies on each side, and That army could be made up of all space brains. Looks like you could splash in some super heavies and some walkers. We haven't got a lot of news about how the flyers are going to interact with this game, but it looks as though you'll be able to do that. Now, in particular, at the beginning of this article that came out on July 31st, they say that the battle will be played uh, to a point of 3,000 points on a 5x4 battlefield. So if you just have one of the standard 40K boards at home. This isn't really going to work because it's too too shallow. But if you have your 6x4 board for 30K, that'll be fine. You can use that, and then you have extra room on the side to set your models up. And they do say that there's going to be an open option for new factions in the future, possibly.
1: I I do want to commend GW here for going with the 5x1 table size and five, not five going by with... Four. Five, or Yeah, sorry, 5 by 4 uh, cutting a foot off of the regular table. I want to commend them for not going to the stupid 60 by 44 table size because that's not a real size, and it's dumb. So I can use my regular 6x4 board and just take a foot, that's where I put my stuff, and still play this game. So good on them for doing that and making the table that size.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's even nice for people that don't have a gaming table, because at least here in the U.S., 5x4 is the standard kitchen table size, which might be why they went with it. It's an interesting idea. I think it's the first game that's really set that outside of the 6x4 four or 4x4 four four table.
2: And if I'm not mistaken, I think for our Adeptus Titanicus, they recommend 4x4. Four four. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I remember thinking a while back. I know, Brandon, you and I did a couple of games of Battletech a while back when I was down at your place. But the, the difference in like Battletech and Adeptus Titanicus is, is so polar opposite because Battletech, you can spend two or three rounds just getting into range. But right out of the gate in Titanicus, you are in the danger zone for a lot of those weapons. So the the small board and the long-range weaponry is just a really vicious combination.
2: So, when they talk about uh, other factions joining the fray, my thought on that is that it wouldn't be anything too far out of the ordinary. I'm guessing some Adeptus Mechanicus units, uh, Custodes, Sisters of Silence. Are there any others that you think might have a showing here uh, beyond Legions of Astardes and the uh, Solar Auxilia?
0: Well, in the article that they put out this morning, they did mention that new factions may make an appearance. And they, they've also said that it will basically stick to the heresy era. So I don't foresee like Xenos factions or anything like that. So I think I would have to lean into Custodes and um, maybe Mechanicum as well.
3: Yeah, I know a little before we were getting started, me and Manipul were talking and I mentioned that, you know, I'd be interested to see if they include demons because that's also something that is making their appearance in heresy even if they haven't quite gotten the support that the other factions have yet so I'd be wondering if we're going to see any sort of uh, like demon primarchs demon units Um, I don't know about the corrupted tank stuff like the defilers because I don't think they have rules in heresy but you know We also didn't have rules for that guard walker they showed, so Epic might be a good place to put it.
0: It will be interesting to see how Primarchs are represented on the tabletop, if they're even there. I don't know if we've seen any, we haven't seen any models for that yet, have we?
3: I believe in one of the early articles, they dropped a hint that there would be Primarchs, but I don't remember off the top of my
2: head. I think in one of the articles they said, oh, wouldn't that be cool? But... Basically, you have just a, right now, the way they handle the HQ is that it's, it's a single base that's your generic HQ, and it has a leadership ability that it gives to uh, the rest of your army. So when you put the army together, you're going to have formations and detachments. Detachments are the building blocks of the infantry, similar, uh, the building, building blocks of the army. And these will be the individual units in your larger scale games, like an infantry platoon, a tank squadron, a banner of knights, that, that sort of thing. Now the formations then are grouped together into a detachment, and it looks like for every fifteen hundred points of your army, you have to have at least one detachment, or sorry, one um, one formation from your primary army list. So in a 3,000-point game, you're going to have two, uh, form, uh, two detachments, and that will make your formation. And it looks like if you play your points right, you can also squeeze in some other units like a walker or air support in that 3,000. But you're going to be bringing less space marines if you do that. So the, the, the first formation that they teased is this Legion Demi Company. Which requires you to have an HQ support and two core units, and then you can splash in. And this is interesting. Uh, a bastion, so that means you're going to get like a deployable terrain piece, more core. You could have more troops or transports, support units, and uh, something called a vanguard, which looks looks like some kind of elite unit. I'm guessing that would be like your terminators and that sort of thing. And then it looks like they've got options here to splash in an uh, air support unit, some kind of uh, light artillery, battle tanks, heavy armor, and artillery pieces. You can have one of each of those. So what do you guys think of the little demi-company that you can put together with your Space Marines?
1: Um, I'll be interested. It, it it definitely looks like that's kind of the kind of core. That's where you, you start. And then you can build up from there. Um, I bet you that's what's going to come in the box. Is you're going to be able to build that right out of the box. I, I was interested. I, I really want to know, and again, because I'm a Titanicus player, how I can fit Titans in.
2: It says later on that up to 30% of your points may be spent on allied contingents, including Knight Households and Titans. So we don't know how much those Titans are going to cost, but I'd guess if you want to play a Warlord, that's going to take up an awful lot of your points, so it's going to be a much bigger game to fit that warlord
3: in there kind of a lord of vortex before we move on one thing that jumps out to me on this company is i think this is the first time in any of their game formats that transports have a limited slot choice option usually it's just you can take transports as many as you want based on having units that can take them but this one specifically names you can only take two optional So I wonder if that's something Um, specific to this company or not.
2: There's a special rule under the compulsory detachment that says, any Legion's Astartes detachment within the formation that contains only infantry models may be upgraded with Legion Rhinos as dedicated transports. So I think the transport tag there is for your uh, support unit or um, another, if you wanted to, to like to splash in another HQ that it would jump into. Or
1: maybe um, maybe that's where your land raiders can go as well. You can like fill out, you can take heavy support land raiders and transport land raiders, get some extra slots that way.
0: I think a really interesting aspect to this game overall is that something that we see in Horus Heresy is that when you're building your list, you have to balance... Your scoring units against all the other cool stuff you want to take. And it it might be very beneficial to take a bunch of tanks and dreadnoughts because they're very powerful and they do cool stuff, but if you're not able to capture objectives, you tend to not take as many of those cool units as just taking a unit that can capture an objective. What I like about Legions Imperialis, and they say it in the article they put out today, is that you're running this massive battle, so you can still take a ton of troops and run a dedicated tank formation. I would love to take three predators in a 3000 point yeah you know, like a regular 3000 point list, but it's not very beneficial because you don't again you don't have the points to spend on those crucial line units. You know, I, I think I was doing math the other day if in a 3000 point match if I take Bobby G and 10 scissorine in a dedicated transport, that is a third of my army. That's a lot of points. So I don't really have room to fiddle around with adding a bunch of heavy units. I really have to concentrate on what I'm going to take for a line. In this format, you get to take all the cool stuff, and that is really awesome.
2: Yeah, and to your point about the the scoring units, they do also have a, a rule in there for Heart of the Legion that the core detachment slots in this formation must be filled with Legion tactical detachments. So... Um, all non-infantry models within this formation increase their tactical strength by one when contesting an objective marker that an infantry model within this formation is also contesting. So I think what that means is that your troops, when they're uh, with their rhino together, uh, form a really powerful unit for for contesting this objective. And the 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 core units form a core for grabbing stuff, but other stuff around them also helps out. So it makes the the tanks even better to be supported by the troops. They do say that there will also be some specialty formations to bring in, like an armored company or an aerial assault formation. So you'll be able to tweak your particular play style to this, but I'm guessing you're going to have to, to, to buy you know box sets and sprues to flesh out something if you want a particular formation rather than just buy the box set again, or the, the starter box again. Now, the, the turn structure looks also similar to what we saw In the old version of Epic, uh, you do have five phases and the first part is something that we'll recognize from Adeptus Titanicus where you issue orders to your uh, detachments early on. And remember your detachments are rather large, so that whole detachment, uh, all the troops and their transports and their artillery are going to be given the same order and then the other detachment the same thing. So I would foresee that you could be running maybe three to four two to four detachments in in this army. So you could have up to four different orders going on. And they get a little bit into that, but it looks like the the main orders have to do with uh, movement. So you have first fire, advance, march, let's see, and charge. Yeah, first fire, advance, march, and charge. You can also be given fallback uh, when you take heavy losses. So there are technically five. That movement basically just means you're going to either take a shot first and sacrifice a movement, um, advance, where you can try to get closer to the, to the uh, which is the most flexible, allowing you it's a regular movement and shooting. You can march, which d- lets you double your movement, or charge, which lets you up to double your movement if you can get into base contact with the enemy. Uh, I think in this game, it looks as though shooting is going to be where it's at. Unless you have some pretty specialized melee troops, so um, do you guys get a sense for that on how important charging is going to be in melee, or is that too early to tell?
1: I I think it's a little too early to tell. Um, I'm not not really sure. I'm sure melee is going to be very important. It is yeah. the 31st millennium, and you know why use big guns when we have swords. Well I know
0: later on in this article they talk about how even even armor may be overwhelmed. So I think and especially like looking at Titanicus melee can be devastating in that game. So they do talk about how melee can overwhelm even armored support. So I think uh, having these well-timed or well-executed charges will be a crucial point of the game, and that's reflective of a lot of the lore and even how heresy works. So I'm, I'm sure that it's going to be absolutely devastating if, if, well, if played I, right.
2: I'm, I'm looking at the range combat just because of the ranges that these weapons have. So your Legion Bolters are only 8 inches, which is nothing, but your Predator is 18, and the Reaver Volcano Cannon is 60. So if you have some artillery that can shoot quite far on a game at this scale, it seems like that's going to play a, a, a rather large role. And because a lot of your units might only have one one wound, um, I don't know. It'll be interesting. Like that Volcano Cannon hits on a 2-up, whereas your Predator's only hitting on a 5. So I, I guess it's too early to tell on that, but but the weapons are there.
3: Yeah, what I would think on that like the volcano cannon in particular is if this little teaser is anything to go by, we're not going to see large groups of Reavers on the table. So you're not going to get too many of those hits. And it looks like it has something called the engine killer or what was it called? The rule
2: probably have engine killer three.
3: So it probably has something to do with killing other heavy armor and Titans. I have to wonder how effective it'll be against troops. Um, If it still has like a large template or something along those lines.
0: Yeah. And on the flip side of that, like the Legion bolters, they have a rule called light and they talk about in this article, like a weapon with this trait cannot damage armor. So like in, uh, in modern 40 K you can double tap with a shitload of bolters and wound a, a vehicle or a piece of armor with a low toughness or, yeah, I guess if you're very lucky you can have that result. In this kind of game and in heresy, if you don't have the right strength and AP, you are hopeless against armor. So I I think that makes a lot more sense and it's reflective even to real life. I mean, if if you don't have the right kind of firepower uh against heavy armor, there's nothing you can do.
3: I'm also curious. They haven't talked anything about reactions in this, and I know there weren't any reactions in Titanicus, but they had them in Heresy, and those reactions, especially Overwatch and Hold the Line, really hose melee armies.
1: They are not going to have reactions in this, I don't think, because of a key little tidbit there, which is alternating activations.
3: Mm, That's true. Yeah, so that might help a little bit.
0: But a lot of the, a lot I of. I was the, just gonna say. <laughs> go,
3: ahead. go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say. Historically, melee has always been good, but GW also knows that and overvalues it, and then overcompensates to balance shooting out to the point where melee ends up falling in the wayside. I mean, this is fifth edition, sixth edition, and now heresy. Like melee is really hard to do. But if you can do it, it is good. So I have to wonder how it'll translate into this.
0: A lot of the guys in some of the discords that I'm a part of were really surprised that this was going to have alternating activations. And I was like, I mean, if you, I, I guess none of them played Titanicus, but I think the alternating activations makes it a very balanced game in its own respect.
1: I mean, if we're being realistic here, GW is the dinosaur with the you go I go system. If we you know you really want to get into it. Most games anymore are alternating activations.
2: Yeah, but don't don't get too far ahead of yourself because when they talk about alternating activations, you're still activating the entire detachment. So you're you're effectively rolling with an entire army. So you might you you might have two to four detachments, but A whole one of those, you know, all the troops, all the HQ and everything attached to it is going all at once. So it is like a whole turn of 40K going on at that time, if you you consider that to be a a whole army. So it's not just like this one little Space Marine shoots and then your Space Marine shoots back and forth, back and forth. No, it's your whole detachment.
1: Well, and I think that's good, though, because I can move. You can react to that before I can shoot you.
2: Yeah, and I think this is where the order system shines. That's what I love so much about games like Titanicus, or if you play uh, Armada for Star Wars, uh, and you're kind of trying to psych out your opponent and trying to guess what your opponent's going to do. That part of gameplay is really exciting to me to try to think, you know, where's he going to be in a round or two? And with this game, you're able to play those orders out and try to, you're kind of playing a game of chicken. Are you going to move up or am I going to stay back and shoot you? And that's where the game gets fun, particularly in Titanicus, when you're setting those orders up and trying to get them off and make things happen. Then then you're locked into your decision making and have to play it out to the end.
0: I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the big tank formations stack up against something like a Titan, because in Titanicus, you will have a single model targeting another, well, generally another single model trying to break its shield, and then do a massive hit to it. But if you have three or four Bassless or Bane Blades or uh, Lehman Russes stacking up on one of these big Titans, what's that going to look like? And I'm really excited to see how it all plays out. So, I mean, I know I've already gushed about it enough, but I'm really excited for this game. I'm definitely going to pick up the box.
2: Yeah, this will definitely be worth a trip down to where you guys live for another uh, you know weekend tournament. Uh, to see the, all our, our, you know, have our full painted titans with our army supporting it going after each other. I think that'll be quite a bit of fun.
0: And Brandon, I know you said you weren't super interested in it in the last episode because you weren't interested in the, um, the solar auxilia, but pretty sure Maniple's going to offer to buy that part off of you anyway. So just throwing it out there.
1: The other side of it is, man, I just I already have enough stuff to paint. Uh, It did get into my head the other day, you know, I was like, I haven't done Iron Warriors yet, which feels like a crime. I was like, I could do Epic Iron Warriors. And then I was like, no, stop, no. And then I looked at my Maniple of Legio Interfector over there and I'm like, I haven't added any tallies to the Titans lately. And I was like, stop, no, it's not happening. Stop trying to make
2: Epic happen. It's not going to happen.
0: It might happen. Having
1: too much stuff to paint has never
0: been a valid excuse for any hobbyist ever, so shut up.
2: Yeah, it's it's a thing with their what I call their specialist games, from, to hark back to an earlier age. Their, the specialist game rules were always better than their mainline products. And I always had more fun playing those. I, I think this you know, if judging by their, their history, anything goes to play, I think this is gonna be a really fun game. They they do offer a little bit more about the turn order. They talk about determining initiative, movement. Combat in the end phase, but they don't really flesh it out a whole lot in the article. But I think we can. But particularly with close combat, they say that you're going to pair up your units that are fighting, and they'll have an individual fight. This is kind of um, squad versus squad. But then if you are outnumbered, your guys have to then fight twice, and you can easily get overwhelmed by the by the opponent. So it looks like you're going to be playing a little bit of chicken early on, trying to faint out where your opponent's going to go, where is he going to be looks like they be the opportunity to drop all kinds of firepower and artillery on positions. And then the, uh, the troops will be scrapping in the middle for the, for the objectives. I think it looks like a pretty solid and simple game. I think it looks like even just with this teaser, I feel like I could sit down and play a game now already. Maybe that sounds a little too gushy, but yeah, I think I, I think I've got it.
0: Well, I think that wraps up our intern hour discussion. What do you guys think? Anything to add?
1: No, other than uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with uh, with Epic.
0: In theory, if you guys end up picking up this box, are you going to do the same legions that you're already doing, or do you think you're going to go a different direction?
2: That went a little deeper than I was expecting in this conversation. For you know, picking a, a new legion that's 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 a big deal. I don't know yet. There's, there's a part of me that wants to be like,
1: yeah, I'll have my epic scale and then we can fight epic scale and then go to 28 millimeter scale and it'll be awesome. We're not going to do that. So probably I, I I'll probably, if I pick them up, I will probably end up doing iron warriors so that I can spray paint them silver and then say they're painted.
3: Yeah. I uh, haven't put too much thought in it. It would be cool to do sons of Horus. I do like the paint scheme for them and the play style. Uh, The issue I have with it is because I'm using that discontinued paint color, I'm pretty much have enough to paint what I have. And after that, I would either have to find an alternate color source for the Imperialis stuff or probably just go a different Legion just to save me the hassle of trying to color match, you know, an old paint. So I'm not really sure what I would do. Just go Raven Guard yeah rebuild the old my old first space marines yeah uh, can, a, chaos a black and you'll have a fully painted army <laughs> yeah just about
0: <laughs> i thought about doing ultramarines again but i also really want to do white scars or night lords i have not decided i think night lords would look really dope beside my legio Lanascara titans and white scars would just be awesome no matter what so
2: we'll see yeah, I might come back with Word Bears because they would run with my Titan Legion as well. So that might be something a little different.
0: Well, all right, then let's get into our famous rival rivalries. And we're going to be talking about the ever growing tension between Magnus the Red and Lehman Russ. And I think that is a good jumping off point for the segment, because our next book is Prospero Burns. And we've already touched on some of the themes that uh, that we'll be talking about in that book. In Thousand Suns, we talk about the kind of growing hostility between the Thousand Suns and the Space Wolves, and we'll really get into that in the next book. So,
2: so to, to put a little a beginner on this section, because hopefully we can do a few more of these later on. First, we want to think about why are Primarch's rivals in the first place? If they were all created as the Emperor to be brothers, why would they ever fight? And secondly, then, how does this affect your gameplay? And if you are just getting into the game and you think, well, I want to split this box with a friend of mine, maybe picking up one of these rivalries is a way to get you some motivation to paint the uh, paint the box set up and uh, build your army in a way that these armies would play and how they might play that rivalry out on the, on the table to get some more games in. Uh, so uh, who would want to tell us a little bit about Who this guy Russ is.
0: Who is... Uh, Ah, Lehman Russ, the Wolf King. The Primarch of the Space Wolves. He is famously brutish and brutal. And he is said to hate psychers with a fiery passion.
1: Yeah, Lehman Russ is an interesting guy. Magnus is not the only uh, Primarch that he butts heads with, to say the least. Um... I think he'd be hard-pressed to find one that he doesn't uh, rub the wrong way. He got along great with Gilman, actually. That's because Gilliman's a Mary Sue. Gilman, Gilman really liked the Space Wolves for whatever reason. Of course he did, because he likes everyone until they turn traitor, but whatever. But no, uh, I mean, Lehman Russ, he, he dueled the Lion. Um, he obviously the longstanding rivalry is with the thousand sons and Magnus for good reason. Um, but he, I mean, he, like I said, he rubbed most of them the wrong way. Um, and at the very least to you, and know, they were kind of just on terms where they were like, we're not friends, but you know, we're not enemies either.
2: So there, there is some historical context for generals like, Alexander the Great I think was known for this of pitting his generals against each other because that would push them to greater heights of heroism and victories do you think the the emperor bred this into the to the primarchs so that they would be better warriors is this is part of their genetic conditioning that they would automatically form a rivalry with one of their buddies or brothers
0: I think it's more an inevitability of them being tailored to a specific use and they talk about this in Prospero burns the space rules talk about how Lehman Russ was tailored to be the Emperor's executioner so it's kind of uh, kind of a given that Lehman Russ would kind of have this visceral uh, attitude or um, people would perceive him as this kind of um, just this blunt weapon almost and somebody's intelligence of Magnus would probably look down on that and say well you're just a dumb tool uh, literally you know why would you speak to me why would you have any power over me and that's where you know Lehman Russ looks at something like that how can you be so arrogant and it's just naturally forming tension
3: I think the, the other factor too is how the Primarchs were raised differently after they were scattered um, you know Angron's a pretty good example of that because of the butcher's nails and what he experienced, there really was no chance that he was ever going to get along with anybody, you know, because he can barely function um, outside of combat. And you see that too, with like Russ and Jagatai Khan have a, in the lore, it's established that they have a pretty hard time getting along with anybody. And it's because of their upbringings on Fenris and Chagoras and the, you know, the, just the different ways that their cultures really look at the outside world. You know, uh, I think a good one is in the last book you were talking about, yeah, uh, the space wolves and the rune priests and how they view their psychic powers very differently from how the Imperium and the other legions at large view psychic abilities.
2: Yeah, because their psychic power is filtered through Fenris itself or something and that makes it clean. Is that the idea?
0: That's the idea, and they they also have this attitude. There's a a scene where Ehriman and Othor Weirdmake are talking, and uh, Othor Weirdmake's going over the tattoos he has across his body, and they're all basically for guidance and focus, and Ehriman asks him, why don't you have any seeking greater power? And Weirdmake basically says, you know, that's not what our our discipline is about, it's not about seeking greater power, it's greater control of what we have. So where the Thousand Suns are constantly seeking more, more, more power, the Space Wolves are, I need to be the most honed instrument possible. And again, that's where a lot of this tension comes from, is that that the Thousand Suns can't really fathom not seeking more. When the Space Wolves are largely content to really excel at what they already have
1: well and they don't even really consider their stuff psychic powers they consider it channeling the raw power of fenris which it totally is psychic powers but that's that's not what they they're like it's not psychic powers it's not the warp it's the weird
3: yeah and like with the white scars they still have it tied to this sort of shamanistic nature kind of worship as opposed to psychic abilities
1: yeah, the same with the Salamanders as well. All of their stuff is like fire-based and they believe they're just channeling the power of Nocturne.
3: Yeah, and so you kind of see the the homeworld of origin of each Primark seeps into that Primark and affects them and that in turn then is transferred to their legions and uh, causes these divides.
2: So the, the Space Wolves are known for their uh, bestial savagery. In fact, that's the name of their special rule. It allows them that when they run in the movement phase, they can still shoot in the shooting phase and declare a charge in the assault phase, but their shooting attacks are made of snapshots. If they have a unit that does, isn't able to run, like Cataphractic Terminators, then they get a plus one weapon skill on any turn in which they successfully charge, even if that charge is a disordered charge. And models with the vehicle unit type make a ram attack. Their strength is at plus one to a maximum of ten, so they focus on units that want to get in very quickly. And this might be uh, assault marines, uh, for instance, a uh, cataphracty terminators with some claws. What other units might be good in a, in a space wolf army to kind of pull up that that idea?
0: Despoilers. The
2: their inducti are super
1: cool.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, their inducti, I think it's you know they get like a plus two to their charge. So they end up having something insane, like a... I don't even remember. It's like a 22-inch threat range or something like that. Can't,
0: can't some of them take chain axes, too? Or am I thinking of
1: something else? No, like that this? is their inductive. They can take chain axes, and if they want, they can take combat shields, but you never do. Right. You take the pistol and the chain axe, and you go flying yeah, yeah, yeah. across the board into something.
0: Yeah, and it's... Um, so the, the rule is... Almost ironic in a sense that um, the there's a line coming up in Prospero Burns where one of the Space Wolves says, you know, the others think that we're an untamed rabble, when the, the reality is that we're the most harshly trained of all, because they know they have to be the deadliest. And that's very, very reflective of the rules. They're not
2: the best at it, though. Well... And unfortunately, to get all those chain axes and all that sweet stuff, you have to wait till the next plastic release comes out with some assault weapons uh, and some uh, some. If some there, fun only stuff. there was a way for a hobbyist to train, get access, where you could push a
1: button and make it happen. You push a button, uh, and then a few hours later, you would have chain axes. I, I can't think of anything.
0: I should have I should have mentioned that in my. Um, favorite project, projects is learning how to 3D print and how frustrating it's been.
2: <laughs> so speaking of magic, who is this Magnus fellow?
0: He's a big red dummy that can't do anything right. Well, on a serious note, on a serious note, he is perhaps the second or third most powerful psyker known to man. The first, of course, being the Emperor. The second kind of third place maybe being Malkador.
1: I actually think Malkador is more powerful than Magnus.
0: It, it wouldn't... Sup- well, so here's the thing. Um, in... Was it when Magnus has the vision in Thousand Suns where he envisions himself sitting on the Golden Throne? Um, Malkador tries that and it doesn't end well. But the theory being is that Magnus was supposed to be the one sitting on the Golden Throne. And if... If Ma- if Malkador is the superior Psyker, well, his story wouldn't have ended where it does. It kind of speaks anyway. to
1: the brutality of the Emperor, though, doesn't it? That he created this genetic legacy to be functionally a giant battery.
0: Yeah, but maybe Magnus would really enjoy it because he gets to fly around in magical psychospace all the time, guiding spaceships around. Who knows?
3: Um, yeah, I so, mean, we've never really gotten the Emperor's perspective, and that's kind of the problem in the lore, is that he's not very open with what he's actually planning and thinking with the Primarchs. It's the whole reason the heresy even happens. Are
1: you saying that the entire heresy happened because the Emperor is a terrible father?
0: <laughs> Gee, haven't heard that one before. <laughs>
1: Well, maybe
0: that's part of the charm of all these stories. I mean, if we had all the answers, wouldn't it be kind of boring? But uh, getting back to Magnus, you know, he's certainly this very powerful psyker, and he's got this legion of his own of very powerful psykers, and they've been on this kind of lifelong crusade, well, I guess as long as they've been with the Imperium, of tracking down and consolidating all the knowledge of the universe, and it very much, you know, comes right back around to bite him in the butt, because... Is the space wolf say in the next book? Some things are worth not knowing, and once Magnus starts to learn all the secrets, well, his life really takes a turn for the worst.
2: Well, part of the problem too is that in the fluff, it looks as though the emperor handpicked all the first members of the fifteenth legion, and he was looking for something specific in them. So it seems as though he is picking them based on their psychic potential um, as recruits for the legion, and it was never a very large uh, legion. And they were um, subject to mutations because of their, their, uh, their openness to the warp. And so early on, they were seen as pariahs, even among the, the, other, the other legions themselves. And so even though uh, Magnus is a, a very unbelievably powerful being, he's not really accepted by the other Primarchs because of this, the, the, the psychic kind of trickery that he's able to bring, to bring into the battlefield. And they were very powerful in the crusade, but they did it through these means that maybe were considered dishonorable or not as worthy as, as the, the chain axe method. So you can see two extremes here with Lehman Russ and Magnus. Lehman Russ with force of arms and savagery, Magnus, psychic powers, thought, discipline, that sort of stuff, two, two different ways of fighting the crusade.
0: And it's very easy to visualize those aspects because the Space Wolves are oftentimes depicted as this very visceral and brutal legion. You know, just committing these absolute atrocities with the weapons in hand. But the Thousand Suns have the same reputation for a very different reason. And we see it especially showcased on Shrike in the Thousand Suns book where they're boiling people alive in their armor, they're exploding their brains in their skulls, and it's a very kind of war crime-y scene, um, especially in a very brutal setting. So to be considered monsters above others because of the power of your mind is a very... Um, is a very unnerving thing to think about.
1: Well, and you got to remember they don't see themselves as monsters at all. Um, obviously. Uh, but when they're doing these things, all they see, like it, it, it to them, it's the equivalent of you stepping on a bug. They are like, we are just the natural next step of evolution for humanity. And we will wipe out, you know, that, that is weaker than us.
0: Right, so when when they do that, they think they're superior, but when another human being, a standard human being, sees that, they're like, I don't want to be anything like you.
2: You're a freaking monster. So in the rules, they have a special rule called Cult Arcana. That means that all models with the infantry or cavalry unit type uh, with this special rule gain the Psyker subtype. In addition, all those infantry and cavalry unit types and characters must select one minor arcana option, and uh, let's see, uh, any model with the infantry or cavalry unit types and independent character and Legion of Star may uh, be upgraded for 15 additional points to gain a single Psychic Discipline from the core Psychic Discipline list, which means that your whole army, or most of it, will, will be Psychers and they have the ability to to field a lot of that on the battlefield. Now, when you're looking to, to build a Thousand th- Suns Force, it looks as though you could just take that basic army from the box set, make them all psychers, and you're good to go. But what else would you might add to this if you're going to splash in some other units? Do you guys have any ideas besides Aramon and the Psyker? What else might be So
0: like? they have a specific Dreadnought that can take the... Um... I forget what it's called. It's like the, the force weapon, the nemesis blade, basically. And I think that can insta kill characters. I, I'd have to double check on that. And then they can also take specific war gear. Um, they have their, um, uh, their specific bolters that it reduces their range, but it gives them shred. So you can. I mean, you'll have a little less range to deal with there. I think you. You you probably want to take some dreadnoughts just to um, be able to deal with the heavy stuff. But that that core box, I mean, just taking a lot of infantry and taking those disciplines gives you a lot to work with, I think.
2: So then Magnus and Russ have a rivalry. Now, does this start uh, at the point where Russ is going in to wipe out Magnus of the Thousand Sons, or has it been brewing for a little while?
0: There's been tension for for centuries among them because of course Russ is never going to trust him because Magnus is a psyker and Magnus just doesn't see any point in putting any effort into the relationship because his brother already hates him.
3: Yeah. I think Thou- uh, thousand sons was probably the first book to really set it down, but it, I don't know if they ever have introduced like a starting point to the feud. It's just kind of been a well, thing know- that's been ongoing. I know a big part of the Shrike
0: campaign is the Space Wolves are on their way to basically burn a library, and all the book nerds and the Thousand Suns are like, we absolutely cannot have that. And it eventually comes to blows where the Thousand Suns start to use their psychic powers to restrain the Space Wolves, but one of the Thousand Suns succumbs to the flesh change in front of the Space Wolves. And when the Space Wolves witness that, the Gloves are, are basically off at that point. From that point forward, if the Emperor gives them the go-ahead, the Space Wolves are going to wipe out the Thousand Suns because not only are they dangerous psychers in their own right, they don't have the... they The Space Wolves have witnessed that the Thousand
3: Suns don't have the ability
0: to control this the way they think they do.
3: Yeah, and that's leading to Nikea, but like the tension existed even before then because, I mean, earlier when... Uh, I'm blanking on the name... But that Space Wolf guy is sent to summon Magnus to aid in the campaign. Oh,
0: on the—that's the, the Agoro campaign. That's M. scarson and Yeah,
3: yeah. When he shows uh, up, there's already tension in the room, and like Magnus threatens to kill him, and it's, <laughs> you know, so clearly this is something that's been going on since functionally the time they met, but uh, it's never really stated where it began or who started. I think another thing that was interesting is in first heretic doesn't Lorgar talk to magnus at one point and it's mentioned yeah, that like think- we're the two that link together because we're not warriors we're you know more intelligent than that and that's another thing right. that sort of ties magnus away from russ russ is very much about the war and the combat and being the executioner magnus is the book guy
0: right russ kind of wants Russ basically wants Magnus and Lorgar to fill the role their father gave them. But Lorgar says he never wanted to be a soldier. And Magnus is like, look, I'm, I'm doing the work. And this is talked about in thousand sons. Magnus says like, you know, I've been campaigning for centuries for my father, but nobody ever sings ballads about the duels I've fought or the worlds I've conquered. You know, all that gets reserved for, you know, Dorn and, and Lehman Russ and uh, Reboot, but nobody ever talks about all the awesome shit that I did. They all think that I'm just a monster. So, you know, it's it's pretty easy post, um, not just post-Nikea, but post-Prospero. Magnus is just like, I think I can just walk away from the Imperium at this point.
2: And you see something echoed in the other Trader Primarchs where they feel abandoned, left behind, betrayed, unappreciated, all that sort of thing. And this seems to be where the powers of the warp have really got into them by attacking their pride. And and this is something that goes back to one of the larger themes we see through the whole Horus heresy is this old human problem. You know, pride comes into this and then it causes people to make bad decisions and then we end up with 10,000 years of war. The, the warp powers
1: get into the Primarchs that way, but let's be clear, they didn't make those cracks. They were already there and they were there a lot of them, honestly, for good reason. Because they had been kind of left behind or forgotten by the Imperium or were never appreciated.
3: Yeah, it does seem on both loyalist and traitor sides, pride and arrogance seems to be a, a major motif in almost every character. Uh, with a few exceptions. Um, I, I think it was Manipul that was talking earlier or maybe it was Warwick. I can't remember. But either way, there was the talk of like Primarchs are, by their nature, are a bit more elevated than standard humans. And so they experience a lot of emotion and all that on that heightened level. So
0: Maniple and I talked about this in Fulgrim. And then Martin and I talked about it during the first Heretic something that's often overlooked in this setting is the superhuman nature of these characters. And they're not just physically superhuman, they're emotionally superhuman. And There's a, a quote that I talked about in the last episode where um, Erebus is manipulating Lorgard to say something along the lines of, I witnessed in you a, a heart capable of, of feeling, uh, what did he say? Uh, feeling despair or something greater than the human heart was able to contain basically. And it's the the superhuman nature of these characters. And that's where a lot of this conflict comes from is that they're, they're not necessarily able to process these vast amounts of emotion that they're dealing with.
2: So eventually, and and stop me if I'm getting too much into what your next book is going to be about, but eventually Magnus, he sees that his because of these fights he's been uh, through his unit of, or his, his uh, legion is down to only about 1,000 marines. And at this, this is at the time where he wants to send a warning to the Emperor about the, the betrayal of Horus. Breaks the Emperor's psychic uh, boundaries on Terra, and the Emperor has no choice but to send Lehman Russ to kill Magnus and his sons. Now this is where a problem might come in with gameplay, is that it looks like they have this one big showdown, and then Horus, or not Horus, uh, Magnus and his legion, they piss off after that, don't they? It, are they? Do they take much role in the Horus Heresy following this? So we, we do up see all for these the siege of Terra, right? Okay,
0: and we we have seen the Thousand Suns perspective in the Thousand Suns book. It talks about how um, Magnus is trying to get a warning to the Emperor. And yeah, after the, you know, at the height of the duel with Lehman and Russ, they teleport away. And for a long time, they kind of um, sit on their heels and they're dealing with, or uh, they, they rest on their laurels or whatever. Um, they are dealing with the flesh change in a way that has not been present since uh, Magnus initially joined or was reunited with his legion. Because for a while he was able to stave it off and then it all comes back very brutally. So for a long time they're on the, the what is it, the planet of the sorcerers trying to um, kind of contain the flesh change once again. And it's, it's a very harrowing campaign for them in the, the kind of psychic nature of it.
3: And kind of going back to Manipal's point, um, we won't get too much into spoilers since you're going to be going into it into the next book. But after Magnus and all that situation gets dealt with, a lot of the Legion gets scattered. And so in later books, when Thousand Sons do show up, some of them are part of the main force. Others are people that got left behind. There's even some loyalists that show up on Chthonia to help the Imperial Fists. So they're still kind of like floating around, but the main battle force is going to be kind of taken out of the picture until Terra So you'll still have lore reasons to have them show up, loyalist and traitor, uh, if you're trying to run that kind of a narrative or campaign sort of setting. But yeah, so there's still opportunities there to sort of build that narrative for your army.
2: And it is, you know, Lehman Russ and his wolves who are sent to kill Magnus. So this is where the rivalry hits its high point, you know, when it's these two. Primarch's going after each other and you see the the very different ways of fighting the their different philosophies about war and about their role in the in the the, the great great crusade so this is a this is a, a classic rivalry and it it perdures even into the 41st millennium so we see in the was it the last edition or was it 8th edition where you had uh, Magnus making an assault on the Fang and this he's fi- finally going to get his revenge on Lehman Russ but like with a lot of those campaign books, it, it kind of looks like something amazing, but that never goes anywhere. Although in one interesting scene, the, the Yvrain has this sword that can restore life to people. And she actually zaps some of the thousand sons who've, who've now just been turned to dust and gives them their life back. And there's the scene where there are a handful of them kind of wake up and like, hey, well, what happened? What, what year is it or what's going on? And then, as far as I can tell, that never comes up again uh, in those in that series of books. But there is a, a little hook there where potentially some of these Thousand Sons might get their brains back and be able to um, maybe repair the damage that happened at, after this this fight with Lehman Russ. So it, it's a it's a rivalry ten thousand years in the
3: making.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if the tenth edition takes that storyline anywhere.
3: Yeah, I've it's probably. In my head, outside of Horus versus the Emperor, it's probably the most famous rivalry among the Primarchs. It's the first one I ever heard of. It was the one that was always yeah, and talked it's th- about.
0: I think it's the kind of the duel that's talked about and documented the most because you get the, the scene where Magnus picks up Russ to try and break his back, but Russ punches him in the eye. Yeah. <laughs> and then Magnus drops him, and Russ is able to pick Magnus up and break him over his knee.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's probably the most famous one out there, you know, uh Space Wolves and Thousand Sons. Although you could also go Space Wolves and Dark Angels or Space Wolves and Sons of Horus or Space Wolves and Space Wolves or
0: Space Wolves and World Eaters.
3: <laughs> Damn it Space Wolves, they ruined Space Wolves. Space Wolves are spoiled for choice for rivals. is all we're saying.
2: <laughs> yeah, so if you and your buddy are going to be uh, splitting a, a box or you know putting two armies together, this is a great place to start. Both of these have character models in plastic that you can pick up. You have Aramon and Gregor Fellhand. Uh, you've got uh, other options in the in the line as well to make characterful forces. So it's a good good place to start if you're good, looking to get into the game.
0: Definitely, I think that was a pretty fun
1: discussion. All right, well, should we wrap it up here and uh, go ahead and get out of here?
0: Yeah, I think we're getting along in the tooth, but this has been a a fun talk and a great episode. So why don't you guys go ahead and check us out on social media, look us up on the X app. Thanks, Elon, that makes things awkward. At LegionCast, a Horus Heresy podcast. And shoot us an email at LegionCast18 at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you guys.
1: Yep. Thanks for stopping by, everybody, and remember to march in Fortune.